Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Uh, let's begin in prayer together in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the sphere of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins, and not to judge my brother. For thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening and over the next coming weeks, all during this Lenten season, I shouldn't say our speaker this evening, our retreat master over the coming weeks, completed his undergraduate studies at Christendom College and subsequently attained a licentiate and doctorate in sacred theology from the Pontifical University, the Lateran, John Paul II's Institute for Marriage and Family in Rome. Dr. Matthew Zakonikis served as the director of the Institute for Religious Studies at Benedictine College and has taught for St. Meinrad Seminary Permanent Diaconate Program, St. Paul Seminary School of Divinity. In 2015, he joined the faculty at his alma mater, Christendom College, and currently serves as chairman of the theology department. He has also been teaching sacramental theology this semester for the religious sisters of the Institute of Catholic Culture's Magdala Apostolate. He's written articles for numerous popular and scholarly publications. His latest article appeared in the journal founded by Joseph Ratzinger uh, called Communio, International Catholic Review, and also on the ICC website for his talk, Unmasking the Pharaoh in the Garden of Eden. Dr. Sakinikis and his family live in Front Royal, Virginia, and uh, we're just blessed to have the good doctor back with us Hello, Dr. Zakonikas. Welcome. Hi, thank you. I have to tell you, I'm very excited. This is such a blessing to me to be able to cover the Gospel of St. John with you. And so I'll be very interested. I want to open up just to, to focus right away on what we're going to be studying. I just want to dive right into St. John's Gospel in order for us to see what the main point, just to focus on what the main point is. So what we'll do when, when we come to the chiastic structure in Mark's gospel, when you're thinking, well, why? <laughs> I thought we're studying John's gospel. I do have one slide real quick as a prelude to show you how John is taking up into his gospel a little bit of the structure that we see in Mark's. So when we come to that slide, I want to bring it up. But in the meantime, I'm going to begin with just diving right into John's gospel. And then I'll explain to you how I think through five nights, having about five hours, to do a study of John's gospel, how I divide it up. So we'll take a look at those slides as well. So I'll discuss how we're going to cover it over five nights after we first dive right into John's gospel. Since, obviously, the great devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus is certainly found in the cooperation subject to Christ at the foot of the cross that's in John's gospel, I wanted to open up with a prayer to the Holy Spirit, and the prayer is very simple. So I'm going to pray that. And then after I pray it, if you'll pray it once with me, and that way we're really invoking the Blessed Mother, who was given to the beloved disciple, John the Apostle, for him to care for her as his mother, because she's truly our mother, because Jesus gave her at the foot of the cross to be our true and loving mother. And so as she gathered with all of them at Pentecost, we really need her to gather with us to obtain the Spirit, since this gospel is written in the same Spirit as the primary author, let's, let's, let's pray to the Holy Spirit in this way. Come, Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, your well-beloved spouse. Amen. And together, come, Holy Spirit, come by means of the powerful intercession of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, 
your well-beloved spouse. Amen. So, the Gospel of John, the best way to begin the, the Gospel of John is at the end. And so, let's get to what the main point of this Gospel is. Let's not waste any time. Let's hop right into what this Gospel is all about. What this Gospel is all about is in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, we have in the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition that uh, from Ignatius Press, we have in verse 30, he makes very clear, verse 30, chapter 20, it already has a subtitle, it says, the purpose of this book. So let's hit the purpose, and then let's see how he is actually right above the purpose is actually the ending. We're going to read the purpose, but then we're going to hop back up and look at the ending of the gospel that's above the purpose. Because yes, there is kind of a little addendum ending, but I would say the gospel really ends with St. Thomas. So we're going to take a look at the purpose. We're going to look at something very unique to John the Apostle. He ends his gospel with how he begins his gospel. He ends it with how he begins it. So, so the purpose, chapter 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is what his whole gospel is about, to bring you, to confirm you Christians in the faith, the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic faith of Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what he wants to confirm you, and because what he's doing is he's taking up all of the synoptic gospels. When I say the Synoptic Gospels, I'm referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, traditional dating, and I hold, because of the Church Fathers, I hold from the studies of Daniel Liu, who was knighted by the Pope in the 1940s for his historical works, I, I think we should certainly hold that Matthew, Matthew's Gospel is written about 10 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, about 43 AD. We know it first appeared in Aramaic. We know that Mark is written in early 50 AD with Peter's consent. We know, and, and that it's his, so Matthew's audience was to the Hebrews in Palestine. That's his audience. That's why it looks the way he does. It's based on the audience he's writing. Now, Mark's going to look different because he's writing to a lot of Alexandrian Jews who are, who have become Christians from the preaching of Peter. He's writing to Christians in Alexandria, a very cosmopolitan city, and he's writing in the early 50s AD. Luke is writing to Gentiles, and his is going to look different than Mark's and Matthew's because he's writing to the Gentiles in the Roman provinces, uh, the provinces right outside Rome, perhaps Rome itself, where he's assisting and taking care of St. Paul uh, before he writes his Acts. So we have basically between the Synoptic Gospels and John writing his gospel about 100 AD, between mid-90s to 100 AD, we have approximately a 35 to 40-year difference. And he is writing his gospel, taking up all that the synoptics already have in it, and complementing them with what's necessary for all the developments that have happened a generation later. A generation later, all the heresies he's having to deal with because of people misinterpreting the synoptics. And so John is writing this that you may believe, and I would say it this way, not only that Jesus is the Christ as Messiah, he is the Messiah foretold, but the Messiah is God. That's what he wants to make very clear. If anyone was misunderstanding anything in the synoptics at all, John, the last apostle, is confirming all Christians in the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, the John who is at the foot of the cross, the John who is at the breast of Jesus, leaning back to speak with him during the Last Supper, 
John, who began his ministry with John the Baptist, and listening to John the Baptist saying, that's the lamb, he went with Andrew and followed Jesus from that moment after Jesus' baptism. That John, who was with Jesus from the beginning and is the last living apostle, wishes to confirm everyone in 100 AD, Jesus is one in being with God the Father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That's the point of this gospel, and that's what we're going to keep bringing out as we move through this gospel. So let's look at the ending of the gospel. We have a confirmation. The very ending of the gospel, we have doubting Thomas, who wasn't there on the date of the resurrection. He says, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus is appearing after John has said, I will not believe until I stick my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side. And notice he doesn't say and touch his feet because he still has the hangups of any Jew of his time that the feet are dirty and you don't touch them. And so unless I stick my finger in his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus appears to, appears to Thomas. He appears to the twin and he says to Thomas, he says, he says, go ahead and put your fingers in my hand and your hand in my side. And Thomas, this is the real ending right here. Thomas answered him. He answered Thomas. And then Thomas answered him. And Thomas answers him in verse 28 and says, my Lord and my God. Why does, why does the gospel really end right here? I mean, because we have the whole point of this book being written. Because he's trying to confirm everyone in faith who doesn't have the opportunity to do what Thomas has done. John, who is a witness to what happened with Thomas, is letting us know how blessed we are through John's words to be able to still believe and to still have faith. In other words, Thomas is, be is ending the gospel where the gospel begins. Open up to John chapter 1. John is making very clear to all Christians the identity of the, of the Messiah. And yes, we'll come back to this very point. We're all familiar very much already, I'm sure, when he opens up with the words, in the beginning. He's actually making a comparison to Genesis. That creation, creation is being redone. A new creation is beginning. And just as God began his first creation through his word, and we've come to know the truth now that there's an inner life in God. God possesses within him the great mystery, hidden from all ages, as St. Paul says in the Colossians, but revealed in our time, the great mystery of Christ in you, the hope for glory. But the great mystery that he was always in the Father without beginning, without beginning, the Father has known himself interiorly as intelligence. He has known within himself the interior word, the logos. He has had a concept, which is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That is the logos. We translate it here, word. In the beginning was the word. But really, the Greek here is logos. That means the inner knowledge, God's inner knowledge of himself, which is God but is not the Father. And so he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, verse 14, skip down, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is John's first point? The man we know as Jesus is a divine person in human flesh, fully God and fully human. His point is proclaimed to you, Jesus is God, not the Father, but the Son. And thus, John wants us to believe Jesus is the Son of God means the Logos, the eternal Son of God, Light from light, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. That is who took flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So God in the flesh is how 
His gospel opens, and how did it close with Thomas? I want to touch his flesh. I want to stick my finger, and after he sticks his finger in his flesh and in his side, knowing this is the same man who is crucified and promised to rise again, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it, is God in the flesh. And not only God in the flesh, it is the temple of God. And so he proclaims the word, God has become flesh, and it ends with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. In other words, what is the divine name? Flip to Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, notice the double name. Lord, which is showing us they're replacing Yahweh, and God, which means they're replacing the word Elohim. In other words, the Yahweh Elohim made the earth, Lord God. What is Thomas telling us? My Lord and my God, this is Yahweh Elohim. But it is the Son, not the Father. And that's why we've grown accustomed to referring to, to the Father as God and the Son as Lord. It's another way of saying Father and Son, God and Lord. And the great mystery of the one divine trinity. So I'm borrowing a little of this of what I'm repeating is actually coming from Joseph Ratzinger's introduction to Christianity and this little discussion here. I just wanted to draw some of that out. So notice in John's gospel, it ends with my Lord and my God because it begins with the Lord God taking flesh. And Thomas, but he does the same thing in his letter, which was written before the gospel. Take a look. So in his first letter, he does the same thing. Look at his first letter now, not the gospel, first letter of John, which I'm going to use to guide us to read the gospel. The first letter of John, chapter 5. In chapter 5, let's go ahead and take a look at verse 11. He ends his letter before the epilogue. He ends it the letter by saying to us why he wrote the letter. Just like we get in the gospel, why he wrote the gospel, the purpose? Well, we get at the end, before the epilogue, his purpose. And in verse 11, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, he says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. Now, this is very interesting because only God possesses eternal life. Only God is without beginning and without end. Everything else, everything else is dependent on the one eternal life for existence. Only God has existence in himself. We, you and me, we have existence from another. It is not in ourselves. We do not have life from ourselves. It is from God. So only God is eternal life. And if one, if someone is communicating eternal life to you, they must be God. This is the argument of St. Athanasius and how he defeated the Arians. Since, since, since Jesus gives us eternal life and only God can give eternal life, then Jesus must be God Otherwise, we're not getting eternal life. That's how he defeated the Arian heretics. So notice this ends with verse 11. This is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. How does he open? Flip to the opening. One of the first letter of John chapter 1. He gets very excited. Another touching, got to touch his flesh moment. The word became flesh is how he opens this letter. But he uses a different language to express that the word is God. He uses eternal life to express it. And so he says, that which was from the beginning, once again, the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands, 
concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we saw it and testified. I mean, he's really excited. Why? I mean, this unless this is important, he shouldn't be so excited. Life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The word God became flesh. And instead of calling him word, here he refers to him as the eternal life. The life that's in the Father before the world was made. The second person of the Trinity. He is clear. 40 years after the synoptic gospels have come out, he is reaffirming for all of us in the midst of Gnostic heretics from Cherinthus, as we'll take a look at him, and the Ebionites, Judaizers, who had a bit of Gnosticism and were avoiding the Eucharist. That's who John was dealing with in his time. And so he's writing to all Christians throughout the world as the last apostle before he passes away, confirming us, make no mistake. Jesus is fully God. That's the gospel. And this is what we're going to study. Annie, could you please pull up the chiastic structure in Mark's gospel? I want to show you how he's even pulling up some of what's in Mark. So you can see this is the, a chiastic structure means this. It means you lead up. It's a memory device. And Mark, Mark's gospel uses this memory device from the preaching of Peter. And what he does is he builds up to a main point, which would be K right here. K is his main point. So the center of Mark's gospel is the transfiguration. Why? Because Mark's gospel in, in right before A, so I would even call this zero, point zero, he opens his gospel saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what he's got to do is help people realize what he means by Son of God. And so he builds up to all the points of leading people to question who is this person doing all these miracles, to the profession of Peter, to clearing up misconceptions they have of the Messiah, to revealing God the Father now saying at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son. In other words, when the divine light comes out of Jesus, it's showing that Jesus was always God. He always had this within his soul, but he's been hiding it from us because he wishes to join us in our suffering and in our dying to redeem us from our suffering and dying. So in other words, for Mark, the transfiguration is the proclamation of the divinity of Jesus, of what it means when we call him son of God. And so you can see in his structure, it begins with the testimony, the secret testimony of the father at the baptism saying, you are my son, which only Jesus sees in Mark because according to Matthew's gospel, no one knows the son but the father, and no one knows the father but the son and anyone to whom the son reveals him. And so Jesus reveals his relationship with the father at the transfiguration. He finally shows Peter, James, and John who he really is. And that is God. He's God. He's not merely another prophet. He's God. And so you are my son is the original testimony. And notice how Mark ends it with a person testifying in case all of you haven't figured it out yet since the transfiguration with Jesus, all of the miracles of Jesus and his testimony. Why does the high priest tear his garments here and see? So remember, A matches A in a chiastic structure. B matches B. The center point is K, which means it begins with this is being presented as Jesus, the son of God. And finally, at the very end, someone you wouldn't expect, having seen it all, says the Roman centurion, unlike the Jews who reject him, even the Roman centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. John has taken a little bit of that structure of Mark of proclaiming Jesus the son of God, and we're going to discover, actually, it's in chapter one, the transfiguration. We're going to see that in a moment. There's many things where people say, well, John doesn't have within his gospel the transfiguration. Actually, he does. 
John doesn't have the handing of the keys to Peter. Actually, he does. There are some things he doesn't have, such as the institution narrative, and we'll discuss why he doesn't. Some of you already know. Well, because he doesn't need to. It's in the synoptics. He needs to explain the meaning of the institution narrative. And so he gives us the bread of life discourse, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's theologically explaining the institution narrative. Let's go to the next slide. I want to point out some things to understand. This is introductory material to understanding John's gospel. I wanted to point out to you how every gospel has a different structure. I'm giving to you some slides that, that are from Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History. And some of the slides that I give you, you'll be able to click the links on these, and you'll be able to go right to, if you want to do further investigation, I, I put some hyperlinks on these, and you'll be able to click them and pull them up and go right into these writings. So this was written about uh, 330, 330 AD, the Ecclesiastical History. But what it has is all the documents we've lost were available to Eusebius at that time. Like you were reading the uh, martyrdom of Polycarp. Well, he has fragments from other sayings of Polycarp in Eusebius's history, uh, just as he has fragments from Papias. And he makes very clear that all the earliest church fathers understood that when you're writing a gospel, you adapt the teaching to the needs of your audience. So in other words, you don't always have to follow what happened in chronological order because you're, you're preaching the gospel to a specific audience, either to Hebrews in Palestine, to Alexandrians in Egypt, to Romans, as Luke did. And so your gospel is going to be adjusted, not changing the words of Jesus, but trying to get points across by putting them in a stronger structural context so that people make no mistake about what Jesus was saying. You know, some instances of these differences, you'll have, you will have Jesus giving his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and he'll give the seven Beatitudes. Certainly there's nine, but the reason I say seven is, is in relationship to the gifts of the Spirit that Augustine associates with the first seven. Uh, Luke, has Jesus giving a sermon on the plane, and he only gives four instead of seven to nine Beatitudes, and he gives woes. And some people say, well, gosh, well, why didn't Jesus and Matthew follow up with woes right after he gave his Beatitudes? And the reason is structurally, Matthew was letting the Jews know right before Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple in chapter 24 of Matthew, in chapter 23, of Matthew, Jesus gives seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because that culture understands that if he's saying this right before the destruction of the temple, why the destruction of the temple is coming. So in other words, each evangelist is being faithful to Jesus' words, but giving a structure based on the culture they're talking to. And I wanted to show you this was always understood and the same teaching about adapting it to the needs of the hearers appears even in the Pontifical Biblical Commission's documents on the true trustworthiness, the historicity, true historicity of the Gospels, and their true apostolic origins even quote this in the 1964 Pontifical Biblical Commission documents. As it appears in the dogmatic constitution, De Verbum, of the Second Vatican Council as well. They were drawing on the fathers when they put these out. So what's the structure that we're going to look at? And there's a little bit of artificiality to the structure. Um, I want to show you tonight. I'm giving the historical context of John's gospel tonight. And I'm going to read with you John 1.14 about the word became flesh. And I'm going to show you, it's trying to show us that Jesus became the new temple. That's what that, that's what that John 1.14 is really saying. And that there's actually days of creation in chapter one of John. There's day two, day three, and day four, because day four is trying to tell us the Lamb's temple is on the rock of day three. The foundation is apostolic succession. That's what I want to show you tonight. 
I want to show you that it, that is the new wineskins that Jesus spoke of in Matthew, so that through his resurrected and ascended body, he would pour the sacraments out upon us, because Jesus is the new temple of the life-giving waters, as prophesied by all the prophets, especially Ezekiel, of the waters flowing out of the temple. Now, the rest of the evenings, I figured I've only got four more evenings. What's the best way, being faithful to John's theology, to present the rest of the evenings? And I wanted to tell you that there are three Passovers in John's gospel, so I'm going to separate them over every Tuesday night. I'm going to look at what's happening in the next Passover. And then I'll spend the last day we're together on the crucifixion of Jesus. So let's open up. I want to show you how on the next slide, before we turn, I want to look at John's first letter again. Right before his ending, there's a very important thing that's going to guide our entire five evenings, our entire five Tuesdays together. There's this one verse, and actually, Father Hezekiah told me that uh, his brother, who is giving the St. Paul's letters, he actually did his doctoral dissertation on this aspect of John's theology of the water, blood, and spirit. So um, we'll have to get him in here to talk with us one of these evenings as well about this. That'll be a lot of fun. So in John's letter, chapter 5, take a look, if you would, at verse 6. John's first letter, not the gospel, his letter, chapter 5, verse 6. And it says, speaking of testifying to Jesus, this is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the witness because the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. And so this is what I'm doing for the five nights. So March 2nd, we'll look at the first Passover that's mentioned, and we see it follows the wedding of the Lamb, where Jesus turns water into wine. And so this is where we're going to study chapters 2 through 5 with He Came by Water. We'll take a look at those chapters, taking a look at John's theology of what it means for Jesus to come by water. And then the following week, we're going to come to the second Passover, of which chapter 6 begins the second Passover. And I'm going to entitle this one, The Lamb's Blood and the New Temple Sacrifice, because this is where he institutes his body and his blood. And so on this one, we're going to be focusing on John's first letter, He Came by Blood. And then on March 16th, we're going to focus on Jesus being the resurrection and the life. We'll look through chapters 11 through 15, and we're really going to look at how Jesus wishes to give us the Spirit. And then the last time we're together, we're not going to focus on the resurrection because you're going to be celebrating that in Easter. I'm going to end it on his crucifixion because I want to focus on the blood and water coming out of his side as he breathes forth his breath, the Spirit. And I want to go through this aspect of the testimony of the water, of the Spirit, the water, and the blood and these three agree. So that's how we're going to go all five nights in this study of John's gospel. That's how I'm going to break it down into structure. The, the structure is there of the movement through three Passovers. I'm just applying John's theology in order to make sure I'm emphasizing John's theology as we move through each of the Passovers. So hopefully that entices you to stay with us as we go through this study. And I want to point this out. He tells us who wrote all the Gospels. This is Clement of Alexandria, St. Clement of Alexandria. And he was, he was writing this about 190 AD. He didn't die until 210 or so AD. And he's writing this about 190 AD. It's one of his first works. And he's telling us the tradition from Alexandria of who wrote the Gospels and why. And notice in paragraph 7, he says, last of all, John perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. So what did it mean when St. Clement is saying, this is the history of how all the gospels came about, this is who wrote them, why does he call it a spiritual gospel? 
I wanted to point out, this is something where you might be interested in reading this. This art, I took this out of an article I had put together for homiletic and pastoral review. And so you have a hyperlink right here if you want to read the article. But this is a paragraph of what I think leads us to understand that spiritual gospel means a theological gospel. To, to do theology is to do a spiritual gospel. So in other words, John is ensuring when he's recounting real and true historical events that he is seeing that having seen the resurrection of Jesus, having lived amongst Jesus, having received private revelations like the apocalypse of Jesus, having been in communion with Jesus his whole life, he sees the deeper reality, the truer reality than merely what you see with the eyes. John sees even deeper, and so he's giving us a theological gospel. And so really what he's giving us is, as Joseph Raya reminds readers, and I'm reading this, John saw all the events of Christ not only as historical, but also as theological. John Raya was a Melkite uh, Catholic archbishop. Authors of the Eastern tradition rightly present John's gospel as an entire theological reflection on the transfiguration. I want to show you why, because the transfiguration is revealing him to be the temple, the temple of God, that heaven and earth are joined in Jesus Christ at the incarnation. And as Cardinal Ratzinger said in his Spirit of the Liturgy, in the incarnation, Jesus becomes the throne of God, the dwelling place of God, because God is incarnate. And so it's been argued that John doesn't include an institution narrative, unlike the synoptics, because of his bread of life discourse. But actually, John, it says, John does not include a narrative of the transfiguration because actually chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 are the explanation of the transfiguration. I'm going to show you real quickly why John opens up with the word becoming flesh, but I'm not going to read it to you. It's for you to read. So these are all my notes for you to read later. This is wonderful. This is so providential, and I'm so grateful that Father Hezekiah read the martyrdom of St. Polycarp because I did not know it was St. Polycarp's feast today. And so I'm delighted that we're bringing in St. Polycarp because Papias is very clear that John, the Apostle John, wrote his gospel accounts heretics at the request of many bishops. And the reason Papias would have known this was that he was a close friend and follower of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. And it's through, it's through Polycarp, especially that John knows so much that Papias knows so much about John the Apostle. And so I wanted to show you, I'm not going to read it to you, in the letter to the Smyrnans, you see that people are denying and avoiding the Eucharist because they won't acknowledge it's the flesh of Jesus. So if this being written in about 100 AD, about the same time as John's gospel, it starts to make more sense why John opens his gospel with God became flesh and the Eucharist is the flesh of God. In other words, you know, people have all these silly arguments. When did Christians start believing Jesus was God? Well, the apostles believed it before he died. They still didn't quite understand it because the Spirit hadn't been given, but they believed it. It's professed after the resurrection. So when did they start teaching Christians Jesus was God? 33 AD, 10 years before the first gospel. Where did the apostles teach Christians that Jesus is God? By telling them they must come to Mass to eat his flesh and drink his blood because it's the risen flesh and blood of God, and that's what gives eternal life, the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the flesh of God, and in receiving the Eucharist, you're not consuming God, God's consuming you. That is the gospel in 33 AD, the liturgy. Lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of praying is the law of believing. They came to worship and why would you want to eat someone's flesh? That's that's absurd. That's that's the the worst of mystery religions. Unless 
It's the mystery of God's love becoming flesh, God becoming flesh to share his life with us, to give us divinity. And we're not destroying him or killing him. He's giving his life for us. All sacrifice has been reversed. Most other religions, Cardinal Ratzinger says, we offer sacrifice to God. Our religion, God sacrificed himself for us. And this is how we know there is love, that God is love, not a dictator daddy in the sky. God is love. We're going to do now what the earliest fathers did who thought this is what John did. And a fragment of St. Papias, we have, it says, quote, taking occasion from Papias of Hierapolis, the illustrious, a disciple of the apostle who leaned on the bosom of Christ, and Clement, and Pantaneus, the priest of the Church of Alexandria, and the wise Amanius, the ancient and first expositors, who agreed with each other, who understood the work of the six days, meaning the six days of Genesis of creation, that they referred to Christ and the whole church. And that's why we see John taking into Christ the fullness of revelation, recapitulating Genesis by taking it up into Jesus. And so John's gospel begins with showing us Jesus is the new temple and the new creation. Are you ready? So, I want you to look in John's Gospel, chapter 1. I want you to get a pen, and I want you to underline with me in your Bible, your pen or your highlighter. So, Father Hezekiah is going to be very happy that you wrote. Remember, footnotes are just where you have footnotes in your Bible. That is just someone else with a typewriter writing in your Bible. And now you have the chance to write in your Bible, too. Everything I always wanted to do as a kid. So, I want you to underline with me in verse... Let's see here. We are in verse four. Wherever we say the word light, I want you to underline it. Are you ready? Verse four. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness to the light, the true light that enlightens every man. Now count the words for light. How many do you get? That's right, seven. Seven times the Greek word phos, phi, omega, sigma, phos, from what you get photon, Phos, light appears seven times. On the first day of creation, what does God say? Let there be light. And so John 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What became flesh? The light. The light that was with God. The eternal light of life took flesh. And actually, when it says, took flesh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the slides that you'll see that I'm giving on the website here, you will discover that there's a Greek word being used that we translate as dwelt. And it is the Greek word for, the Greek word is skanun. And according to Jerome Biblical Commentary, that Greek word skanun is the word for pitching your tent. Like when Moses pitched the tent in the wilderness, the tabernacle of God. It's saying, really, the word became flesh and pitched his tent. In other words, tabernacled. He became God, God's dwelling among us, just like Moses' tabernacle. Just like when the glory cloud at the end of Exodus chapter 40 comes down on the tabernacle and fills it, so God took flesh like a tent and filled the flesh so that it was God in the flesh as though God had tabernacled. In other words, Jesus is the temple coming to replace all the foreshadowings with 
the reality. Reality. And so you'll be able to read later in some of the slides I gave, every temple is actually a microcosm of the world. It's a microcosm of all of creation. It's a little world. Every tabernacle is an entire cosmos in miniature. That'll be important to bear in mind because when we come to day four, we're going to see that Jesus, Jesus is the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and the sacrifice. And I'm going to draw in someone who the Institute of Catholic Culture has been using. I love his book. It's called The House of the Lord. It's in the slides, Stephen Smith. And I'm going to show you how he develops what's happening with the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man in John's Gospel as a reference back to Jacob's ladder. We'll come to that. So that's the movement. Now we're going to move from John 1.14 and show Jesus setting up the church, not as a building, but as a liturgy that needs apostles. So the sacrifice of the lamb can be made present and he can become the gateway into the inner holy of holies, just as the letter to the Hebrews chapter 10 discusses it. So how do I know this is day one? Let there be light. Because if you look at John chapter one, verse 29, it says the next day, which means all of John's gospel from verse one through 28 is the first day. And so what is the main theme of those verses? That Jesus is the light. And so we have a new creation. The first creation was made through God said, it was made through God's word. And now God's word is taking flesh and himself becoming a new cosmos, a new creation, a new temple to bring to realization all the Old Testament prefigurements. And verse 29 lets us know we're now in day two. And on day two, John points and says, behold, the Lamb of God. But what's so interesting is what happened on day two, Jesus walked into the waters. And as he walks into the waters, John said in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend as a dove from heaven and remain on him. Pause. What's day two of Genesis? What does God separate on day two? The waters below from the waters above. And notice from heaven above comes the Spirit. From beyond and above the heavens, the Spirit, which says like a dove, which means the sign of peace. What's a dove represent? Peace. The Spirit of peace has come upon the true Messiah. Shalom. Shalomon. Solomon, the greater than Solomon, the one who built God's temple, is here and is doing what the true Solomon was meant to do, build God's temple. And so you have the waters above, the waters below. He enters them, and he brings the Spirit and he sanctifies the waters of baptism for us, the first entrance of the church. Once you go through the waters of baptism and you're baptized into Christ, you now are able to enter the liturgy of the church. So guess what he does on day three? It says, verse 35, the next day. And on the next day, right before we get to the fourth day, this is the third day, verse 42, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John? In other words, in a sense, um, there's a lot going on here too. Simon, son of Jonah, which is, Jonah is the word for dove in Hebrew. The one who the dove come, in other words, the spirit reveals to Simon at the change of keys. The spirit helps Simon proclaim, you are the Christ, the son of God. So, and actually, implicitly, we have right here, we have right here the, um, the handing of the keys, because that's when Jesus changed Peter's name. And so it says, you shall be called Kephas, which means, in other words, he just said, you are now the stone. Baptism admits you to liturgy, but if you're going to go to a liturgy, you have to be with the apostles and the apostolic succession. Take a look real quickly with me. Take a look in Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 10. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. 
When does it come down out of heaven? At every liturgy. Heaven is joined to earth in every liturgy. The great high priest joins us in his high priesthood mediation to be worshiping with him and sanctified by him. And what's the foundation of this city? It says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles. In other words, the rock. Represented by Peter, the foundation of the city is the apostolic succession, which does what? It makes present the sacrifice of the lamb, which is the temp entrance into the temple, the sacrifice that makes us whole, the sacrifice that we're drawn into in heavenly worship. And so notice then, turn to verse 22 of Revelation. So chapter 21, verse 22 of Revelation. So in that great city, when it comes down, built on the foundation of the apostles, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So Jesus is the temple. And what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? He pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So he's saying there's the temple, but that was already told to us in John 1.14. The Word became flesh and pitched his tent, but notice it's also the transfiguration. In Jesus is the divinity, the Holy of Holies. Because in 114 it says, it says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father. That is a direct reference to seeing him in the transfiguration. When Jesus was revealing himself to be the true temple. So day two, baptism. After you're baptized, day three, you enter the church's liturgy by fellowship with the apostles in union with Peter, the rock. Now look at day four, verse 43, the next day, that's day four. And what happens on day four after he bumps into Philip and Nathaniel, Nathaniel's very impressed, already professes him the son of God by his foreknowledge. And Jesus says to him, he says in verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, you saw under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is a direct reference to the dream of Jacob, where he lays down. And he sees the ladder to heaven, a ladder uniting heaven and earth, and angels ascending and descending. This is temple imagery of God's joining himself to earth, and that happens in a temple. And Jesus is saying, I, the Lamb of God, am the temple, and you are going to see heaven and earth joined in me. When? Well, all of a sudden it jumps from day four to chapter two, verse one, on the third day. And it's a very weird statement, because right away, we want to say, this is day seven, and it is meant to be day seven, the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is all about entering God's rest. It was the seventh day that Moses goes into the glory cloud of God on Mount Sinai, which is the first temple, the Hebrew Sea. It says on the seventh day, chapter 24, verse 17 or so, Moses on the seventh day, God calls Moses and he goes into the cloud on the seventh day. That's the Sabbath. Now, when he says on the third day, he's pointing to the Sabbath, but he's also pointing to the day of resurrection, the wedding feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb is our liturgy. When the risen Jesus makes his flesh and blood available for us to be with him where he is at, the wedding feast. Blessed are those when they hold up the Eucharist in the Western Rite. Blessed are those who are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus resurrected on the third day, and it becomes the everlasting day, eternal day. There is no, no need for sunlight. The Lamb is the light. In other words, perhaps he says on the third day because he's pointing to the resurrection day. And what he's trying to say is the reason we have an eight-sided and octagonal baptismal font 
It's because you're being baptized into the eighth day, the eternal day. In other words, Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. So the first creation, we have Sunday to Saturday. But since Jesus resurrects on a Sunday, that becomes for us the eighth day, the day beyond all days. This is where I'm going to hold off now. I did mention you can read a little bit more about the connection between Jacob's ladder and, and Jesus making clear that he's the temple by referencing the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's in the wonderful book by Stephen Smith. If my recollection serves me rightly, that's where I remember reading that part of a connection of that being a temple imagery. And so this is all on the slides. I now wanted to open up to questions. Thank you, Doctor. Excellent. And boy, you gave us a lot to uh, to uh, unpack tonight and to uh, meditate on study over the coming weeks. So thank you so much. <laughs> we had a ton of, of questions coming in. Um, yeah. But uh, Doctor, we're wondering, okay. could you just, you, you mentioned the light being mentioned seven times in those right. early verses of the first chapter of John. Um, but I, but, uh, but someone was writing in asking, well, what is the significance of the number seven? Like why not? Why not have you know nine times this mentioned, or three times this mentioned, or whatever like that, or twelve for the apostles? Why seven times there in the first first few verses? Oh, this is excellent. So I, I saw some of the questions popping up, but I would say the number seven because the root word of oath is inside of it, shava, and so since the the word for oath and the word for seven share the same Hebrew root word. Whenever you see the number seven, that means God is swearing himself to us. God's covenant, covenants are made by oaths in which God makes us family with himself. This is something Scott Hahn really brought really well into the American uh, situation of Catholicism, really expressing this and bringing this uh, at a much more popular level than it had ever been before. And so the, the, the number seven is showing that actually Jesus is becoming the new covenant. And so... In a, a, a in the Old Testament, a temple is always representative of God's dwelling with man because God is in covenant with man, and so the temple is always a sign of God's promises of belonging to the covenant. And so Jesus, in in that we use light seven times, is showing that God is committing Himself by the number seven to us by becoming flesh. In other words, God is swearing the oath to us. In in a sense. God is doing the great exchange. God is giving his total self to humanity, and humanity must give its total self to God in the exchange of oaths so that we are total family. God, God brings us into his family by making the oath, and in our receiving and taking the oath, we give ourselves back in faithfulness to what God has sworn. We're faithful to God's word, and now we abide in God's will. And so this is the significance that Jesus, so the temples always represent God's covenant. Jesus is becoming God's covenant with us. He, he is the new covenant. Remember, it's very interesting. I always like to remind students when we study the New Testament, I always say, you know, really the New Testament is properly the new covenant, and the new covenant is properly the new law. And so St. Thomas is very clear, the new law is primarily the grace of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts, received in faith, and working through charity, it is secondarily a written law. And so actually the law is Christ in you. Christ dwells in you. He is the great mystery. Christ who loved me and died for me, it is that Christ who is in the bosom of the Father, who now comes and became flesh, so that by having become flesh and obtaining the Spirit for us, by the Spirit he can live in our bosom. <laughs> and make us family of God. Uh, Dr. Zakonikis, Annette writes, did you say Jesus rose on the eighth day? Okay, so Jesus rose on the third day. So the reference to chapter two, verse one, it says on the third day. But we have to remember, we have always understood the resurrection as, as a day beyond all days. That, that Christ and his resurrected body is always available to us. We celebrate the new creation. The Sab In other words, the Sabbath actually is the seventh day. So in the Jewish calendar, that would go from their Sunday to, to their Saturday. 
But we say the Sabbath is now Sunday, a day beyond the Sabbath. And that's what I meant by the eighth day. So traditionally, we represent that day beyond the week as the resurrection of Christ. It's, it's alluded to as being called by the fathers the eighth day. And so that's why the, the traditional baptismal fonts, um, Father could speak more to the East, but certainly the, the traditional baptismal fonts that you still see in the West are an octagon showing you're being baptized into Christ, who is the new day beyond all days. That's my illusion of the eighth day. So definitely he rose on the third day. Inez, you were raising your hand. Go ahead. You have to take yourself off a of mute there. I have two questions related to the same thing. You uh, mentioned how John wrote his um, gospel as a way to answer to heresies that were coming up at that time. My first question is, do you, the, uh, the, on verse 14 of chapter 1 of John, talks about dwelling and glory. Was he responding to something related to Ezekiel's vision? Was something coming up at that time related to that? That is my first question. All the themes of the Old Testament, all the prophets, he's certainly going to be revealing the glory of the temple, and Ezekiel mm -hmm. to the glory of the temple to come. Um, I don't think in any way we'd ever say that, that John's not doing that. So I would certainly always say, since John is showing Jesus's fulfillment, I have no doubt that Ezekiel is in many ways in John's mind so in other words, he's giving a structure within the opening of his gospel, giving real historical events as he explains their theological meaning in the structure. Okay. And the second question is uh, refers to verse 51. Uh, the fourth day, the angels ascending and descending. Yes. The fourth day of creation is the day where the sun, the moon, and the stars were created. That's right. I understand, I don't know if this is a tradition from Bible times, but I understand that it's also considered that the day that the angels were created. Is there a connection there? Sometimes. So I think Father Paul Mankowski, God rest his soul, beautiful priest, Father Paul Mankowski, passed away recently, and, and um, I had the blessing of working with him, and he helped me, uh, I was taking care of uh, permanent diaconate formation out in Minneapolis, uh, out in New Ulm, uh, Minnesota. And uh, I invited him to come out to teach Old Testament because he used to teach at the, um, at the Biblicum in Rome. And so he came out and he explained to us that, you know, it was seen that the angels are there um, when God says, let there be light. But there seems to be a connection between day two, the skies, and day, I, I, I think maybe he was saying day four. I'd have to go back and look it up. But his point was the angels were always associated with the stars. We kind of have this movement in which God is represented in a sense by the sun, not that he is the sun like ancient mythological legends. But um, then the angels are represented by stars and the bishops are represented by candles or lights. And so since the stars are on the fourth day and stars are connected to angels, there can be a connection between the angels coming down from heaven to earth in the sense of uh, as messengers of God and, and co-workers with us in the gospel. Okay. So there would mm -hmm. be a connection with the fourth day between the stars that populate um, the heavens from day one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So certainly there would be a connection there. Doctor, you mentioned the um, dating of the gospel um, as late as 180, somewhere between 90 and 100. Um, and uh, the person's asking what historical clues caused you to date uh, John's gospel in that time period. So this is, this is from the tradition of a lot of the writings of the fathers, some of which I mentioned in the ecclesiastical history of Eusebius. It's very interesting that John, at the very epilogue of John's gospel, he refers to uh, many people had come to the belief that, that when Jesus said, and when he said to Peter, and Peter said, well, what about this one, referring to John? And Jesus said, what if I want him to live until I return? And so some people said that John, it's even addressed in the epilogue, that uh, some people thought this meant that John was going to live for forever until Jesus returns. And they might have thought that already because John was so old. 
and they're already looking at John saying, look how old he is. He's still going to stay alive until Jesus. And, and John makes clear in the epilogue, this is not what Jesus meant. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you already have an internal clue. You have the tradition just from so many fathers in the dating of the gospel. And I'm taking this from multiple commentaries in which they speak of this. So um, it's interesting that uh, we have a Muraturian fragment as well, dating just after 100 AD. Um, and since John is, John's gospel isn't quoted by earlier writers, such as St. Paul, um, and St. Paul's dying around 66, so it would seem it was written after that time. So there's a few clues in how they work out that is between 90 and 100 AD. We also would match it up to um, what was happening at the time from some of the fragments of Papias, mentions of what Ignatius' letter discusses the heresies they're dealing with, that the theology we find in John is certainly dealing with the heresies at that time of 100 AD. I did want to say in the slides, there's a link to, I wrote on these days of creation through the third day of creation in one of the links there. So if someone wants to, to go into that too, there are, there, there are links inside the slides that are helpful. Wonderful. Thank you, Doctor. We really appreciate you being with us tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.